Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the murder trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin. Opening arguments began today, 10 months after the death of George Floyd, witnessed by millions of people in excruciating detail, all nine or so minutes of it. After that triggered yet another national reckoning on race and policing. Prosecutors in Chauvin's defense presented their their respective cases, offering competing interpretations of the events that unfolded that day. Opening for the prosecution, attorney Jerry Blackwell argued that Chauvin betrayed his badge by using excessive force. And in laying out the timeline, he revealed that Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck for longer than we previously knew, for a total of nine minutes and 29 seconds. You will learn what happened in that nine minutes and 29 seconds. The most important numbers you will hear in this trial are nine to nine. What happened in those nine minutes and 29 seconds when Mr. Derek Chauvin was applying this excessive force to the body of Mr. George Floyd? You will see that he does not let up and that he does not get up. Even when Mr. Floyd does not even have a pulse. We're going to prove to you that Mr. Chauvin's conduct was a substantial cause of Mr. Floyd's death. According to prosecutors, Floyd said he couldn't breathe 27 times. And as Blackwell mentioned, an officer at the scene even checked Floyd's pulse after Floyd had been pinned to the ground for six and a half minutes. Let's watch that moment. Is he breathing right now? Check his pulse. Check his pulse. And though Floyd had no pulse, Chauvin continued to pin his lifeless body to the ground for another three minutes. And he did not let up, even as paramedics arrived with a stretcher. All the while, bystanders at the scene were reacting with increasing concern for Floyd's life. But today, Chauvin's defense lawyers argue that the bystanders themselves actually bear some responsibility for what happened. There are people behind them. There are people across the street. There are cars stopping people yelling. There are there is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be a threat. They're screaming at him, causing the officers to divert their attention from the care of Mr. Floyd to the threat that was growing in front of them. And as many legal observers had predicted, the cause of Floyd's death was a subject of debate, with Chauvin's lawyer arguing that it wasn't due to suffocation at all. The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing, flowing through his body. There was no evidence that Mr. Floyd's airflow was restricted. The jury also heard from three witnesses for the prosecution, including a 911 dispatcher who watched the scene unfold live on traffic cameras that she was monitoring. She said the officers had Floyd pinned to the ground for so long that she thought the video had frozen. 
Joining me now, Paul Butler and Glenn Kirshner, both former federal prosecutors. And Paul, I want to start with you. Um, let's start with blaming the crowd. Th that is a very innovative defense, I would say, uh, on the part um, of Chauvin's defense, essentially saying that, you know, because they want to get to the perceived a threat, right? That's part of the magic words that normally get police officers off uh, on charges of, of murder or, or of killing someone. And so he wants to get a threat in there. So he says the crowd was the threat. What do you make of that defense? So we always knew he was going to put George Floyd on trial, but we didn't know the defense was also going to put the People, the bystanders who did what they can to stop George Floyd from being killed, we didn't know that the defense was going to put them on trial as well. What he's trying to do is to paint a picture of a chaotic situation in which the officers didn't have any good choices. That still doesn't explain that final two devastating minutes in that video when Chauvin is told that there's no pulse, but he still keeps his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. You can't use the crowd and you can't blame Mr. Floyd for what that officer did. And Glenn, on that point, if you could just zero in on that a little bit more, because you know, I talked to a law, a law enforcement uh, world friend um, just last evening who said the same thing to me, which is that, you know, it's very hard to convict police officers of, of crimes like this. It just is. You know, it's very rare that police officers actually get convicted, even when you can see on camera what happened. Think Eric Garner. Right. They, they blame that on his weight and tried all sorts of other defenses. And and, and they never there was never even a prosecution. So in this case, what this law enforcement uh, friend said to me is the key to this prosecution is the point at which the officers were told there is no pulse. Because at that point, the officer had actually been warned. Chauvin had been warned. This guy's got no pulse. So basically, you're pinning a body to the ground that cannot be a threat to you. And that that warning that there's no pulse could be the only thread um, that could produce a conviction. Do you agree with that? I don't think it's the only thread, Joy. I think it's helpful to the prosecution that they can to allow Jordan. Okay, we're going to hold on for just one second, Glenn, because your audio is giving us some some issues. So we're going to hold off on that. I'm going to throw that same question to you, Paul, while we try to fix Glenn's audio. Same question to you. Uh, is that the thread that prosecutors are going to need to hang their hat on in order to try to get to a conviction on one of these counts? So prosecutors have very good evidence on the two points that they need to make. First, that the officer's use of force was unreasonable. And that's where this evidence that two minutes after Mr. Floyd was still had no pulse, the officer still continued to use that force. That's just not going to fly with the jury. And what the defense is doing, Joy, is to make it look like George Floyd was the, uh, the the perpetrator here. So in the first five minutes of their opening statement, we learned that Mr. Floyd was on drugs, that he tried to use a counterfeit $20 bill, that somebody called 911 and said there's a big man who was drunk and could not control himself, and that Floyd so violently resisted arrest that three police officers could not overcome his strength. So they're doing that to claim that the force used against Floyd was reasonable. Again, part of that strategy makes sense. Chauvin did what he was trained to do. They said use of force isn't attractive, but it's part of the job of policing. Neck restraints were legal at the time, but Joy, 
Of course, the defense is also trying to make Mr. Floyd less sympathetic to the jury. Right. And they're doing it in a problematic way by summoning up stereotypes about black men high on drugs, having brute life strength. That was a successful strategy in the defense of the uh, in the case against the police officers who beat up Rodney King. Yes. So I guess we have to see whether that defense works in 2021. But here, logic exercise, right? Okay, so if they're going to say that he's just this, you know, brute force guy that's so threatening that they need all of this force, but they're also trying to say he was near death. So you can't be both a a, a brute that could just take down three officers in one shot, but also dying anyway, right? Because they're also trying to say he was already dying and that nothing that Chauvin did could have stopped it. Here's the prosecutor. This is Jerry Blackwell, um, because that was the second thing. First, it was blame the crowd. Then it's blame the drugs. Here is uh, Jerry Blackwell rebutting that. You will learn that he did not die from a drug overdose. He did not die from an opioid overdose. Why? Because you'll be able to look at the video footage and you see he looks absolutely nothing like a person who would die from an opioid overdose. So we know that there are competing autopsy results here. So that's an issue is that, you know, the family got their own autopsy done and then there's the official autopsy. You know, work through that piece of this, Paul, because you can't argue both things simultaneously. If he was practically dead is is what they're making it sound like. He can't also be a live and active threat. But what do you make of these sort of competing results as to whether or not drugs were the real cause? So the official medical report from Hinneman County says essentially that Mr. Floyd died of a heart attack, but the death cause of death was homicide, meaning that there was a human actor involved other than the person who died. The family medical report goes on to say that the cause of death was asphyxiation. The official medical report rebuts that. And so the defense is saying, well, gee, you would think that if someone's knee was on another person's neck and that person died, that they would die because of asphyxiation. And that's not what the report says. Remember, all the defense has to do is to poke holes in the prosecution case to create reasonable doubt. They don't have to come up with an actual reason why Mr. Floyd died. It's essentially throwing mud, hoping that that something sticks. But here's why I don't think that's going to work. If the jury buys what the defense is saying, they would have to think that it's just a remarkable coincidence Mm -hmm. that Mr. Floyd just happened to die of a heart attack after Officer Chauvin had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. I don't think the jury's going to buy that. Yeah, and again, he's the most threatening, non-responsive person without a pulse ever. For three whole minutes, uh, Derek Chauvin continued to restrain somebody who had no pulse. I don't know how you make all of those arguments at one time, but um, I guess they're going to try. Paul Butler, um, thank you very much for being here. Sorry that we could not get Glenn Kirshner's sound back. Next time, we will have him on uh, again. And joining me now is George Floyd's sister, Bridget Floyd. Uh, And Bridget, thank you so much for being here. Um, Great to talk with you. Your your brother, um, um, Philanese, um, he called the case a slam dunk today. This was his take. I just want to I want to let um, let you hear that. We know that uh, this case it, to us is a slam dunk because we know the video is the proof. That's all you need. Uh, the guy was knitting on my brother's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. A guy who was sworn in to protect. He killed my brother in broad daylight. That was a modern day lynching. It was at least second degree murder. Third degree murder, that's just there. But second degree murder, it clearly showed that he killed my brother.
And by the way, th- third degree murder, essentially sort of accidental death, um, causing death accidentally, not intending to. Do you feel the same way? Um, Bridget, do you feel confident that this is going to be a, a case in which there's a conviction? I absolutely agree with my brother Felonius. This was intentional. We all seen it and we will, we will get justice. That officer will be charged. And I say that with mighty, mighty power because there's a God that sits high, but he definitely looks low. And the world will never forget, never forget what that officer did to my brother because he was not trained to do such thing as he did. And, you know, and apologies for mispronouncing your brother uh, Philonius's name, but, um, you know, that confidence, I think, is 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 hopeful. Um, but you also, uh, I'm sure, know the record. You know, I, I think about Eric Garner when I think about your brother. I covered that case as well. And that was a case that seemed incredibly obvious that what, what, what happened to Mr. Garner was clear. It was on tapes very similarly. He said, I can't breathe. It, it's so sort of eerily similar. And in that case, you know, it didn't even get past a grand jury. There was not even a charge. If 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 it turns out that it's not that that the outcome here is not a conviction, then what? What will you think about the American criminal justice system at that point? Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. I don't even want to think like that. I don't even want to speak like that because I know we're going to get justice and we're going to get justice for all families who did not get justice. So we're standing tall with them. We're praying with them as they're praying for us because my brother was the chosen one. It took me a long time to accept that. But God chose him to change this world and he would not let us down without giving us justice because he took something so special from us. That officer took something so special and when when God takes things from you, he replaces them. He replaces it. So I know we're going to get justice without a shadow of a doubt. My final question to you, has the, the, the police department in any way, you know, spoken with the family? Has there been ever an apology or any official sort of, you know, anything from the police department to say that, that, that this was not the intention, that they are sorry that this happened to your brother? Have you heard anything like that from the police department? No, 
No, ma'am. I have heard, I have heard nothing. And it's okay. It's okay that they don't reach out to us because there are going to be some laws placed where officers are not going to be able to do the things that they want to do. They're going to have to abide by the rules. They're going to have to be held accountable for their actions. So it's okay that they haven't reached out to us because they know what the, they know what that officer did and they know it was wrong. Maybe they don't know how to approach us. But it's okay. Because we're going to get what we're striving for. And that's justice. Bridget Floyd, thank you so much. Uh, our condolences again um, from me and everyone here at the show. So thank you so much for taking some time this evening. Be well. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And up next on the readout, uh, I'm going to show you exactly what is in. This is important. The For the People Voting Rights legislation that the right is screaming about and why Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz are indeed so afraid of it. Plus, a new covid warning from the CDC director as Dr. Deborah Birks, one of Trump's top experts, tries to rehabilitate her tattered image, saying many lives could have been saved if Trump had done the right thing. The same Trump that she once effusively praised. He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. Never challenged Trump's lies when it mattered most. Could be tonight's absolute worst. She sure could, but she's not. The big reveal is coming up. The readout continues after this. As political and legal backlash to Georgia's new draconian voter suppression law rolls in, Republican senators are not concerned about Georgia's blatant attempt to restrict voting by black, brown, AAPI and young voters. No, no. But they are losing their minds about the effort by Democrats in Congress to expand voting rights, namely the House passed for the People Act, H.R. 1. H.R. 1 uh, is the biggest power grab in the history of the country. Every time a Republican does anything, we're a racist. If you're a white conservative, you're a racist. If you're a black Republican, you're either prop or Uncle Tom. They use the racism card to advance a liberal agenda, and we're tired of it. H.R. 1 is sick, not what they're doing in Georgia is it automatically registers everyone to vote if you interact with the government. So if you get a welfare payment, if you get an unemployment payment, if you get a driver's license, if you go to a public college or university, it is a profoundly dangerous bill. Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written and held by the devil himself. By the devil himself. Ooh, except for what they're calling evil, most people would call convenience. Since H.R. 1 and its Senate version, S1, expands voting largely by, yes, taking the burden off of you, the voter, and putting the onus on your state to make voting in federal elections easier. It includes things like, yes, automatic voter registration through agencies like the DMV and public universities, places where you are already providing information. It requires states to provide online and same-day voter registration to make signing up easier for you. And since your life is busy with work and family and school obligations, it would require states to allow two weeks of early voting and no excuse mail-in voting. And it prohibits states from requiring ID when you mail in your vote. So you don't have to, like, make that extra trip to the copy place, which many people will not have time to do. And shock of all shocks, not everybody has a copy machine in their home. All of these things are remarkably non-controversial, even mundane. 
as opposed to, I don't know, making it illegal to give food and water to folks waiting hours in line to vote like Georgia's law has done. Today, another lawsuit was filed in response to that GOP-backed voter suppression law by the Georgia NAACP, joined by several other groups. It alleges, quote, officials have resorted to attempting to suppress the vote of black voters and other voters of color in order to maintain the tenuous hold that the Republican Party has on Georgia. Meanwhile, calls for an economic boycott of Georgia or of Georgia-based corporations in the wake of the law continue to grow including a boycott of Atlanta-based Delta Airlines, which put out a statement praising parts of the bill. There are also calls to boycott several other Atlanta-based corporations, including Coca-Cola, UPS, and the Home Depot. Joining me now is Democratic strategist Juanita Tolliver and Michael Steele, former chairman of the RNC. And Michael, I have to go to you first. It is it is a, a little comical um, to watch Mike Lee say this was like written in hell and Lindsey Graham whiny, whiny. Oh, you're just mad because I'm a white guy. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it's whiny, but it's also weird because if there if the concern by Republicans is election security, Putting governmental agencies and entities that are already taking in all this data about people and know who everyone is seems to me the easiest way to ensure that the people voting are legitimate voters. The DMV knows who you are. The, federal, the local governments know who you are. They're making this sound like it's some sort of weird space alien monstrosity when it's literally like voter convenience. It, it, I mean, I wonder just from your point of view as a Republican— you know, this doesn't this make it clear that they just don't want more people to vote because they think they'll lose? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. you've just summed it up. Uh, that, that, look, that's the, the, the legislation in Georgia that was signed in the law, what you see in Arizona, what's bubbling around in other states right now, a significant number of states, um, is all about uh, the inability of the party to win elections. Um, and so this is born out of that fact. Um, I, I've been an advocate of voting reform since I was a county chairman here in Prince George's County back in the 1990s. My view then being in a county where I was outnumbered, Joy, uh, there are 800,000 residents, 58,000 of whom at that time were re registered Republican right. voters. OK, so just to let you know what the <laughs> landscape was like right? right, for this brother, this black Republican, since Lindsay wanted to call me out. Right. Um, was was virtually uh, about how we access the ballot box and creating the narrative to get voters to support your agenda, support your views, your policies, your candidates. When you can't do that, you game the system. Right. When you can no longer win with the direct approach to voters with candidates and ideas. Remember, you just played a montage of Republican officials who don't have a platform. <laughs> They have nothing to sell to the American people. They can't even sell it to their own constituents in their state. So, look, we know this is what this is all about, voter suppression. We know this is all about a fear of black voters. Um, this is targeted to states like Georgia, like uh, uh, Michigan, where black voters turned out in numbers. Yeah. And so when you can't beat the numbers, you game the system to repress those numbers as much as you can. So therefore, you can't bring water to someone standing in line for eight hours uh, to vote. It's, it's wild, Juanita. I mean, Republicans passed the voter expansion bills in Georgia to make it easier to vote absentee, to say you don't have to be sick or you know out of town. They passed those things to make it more convenient to vote. They passed all of the laws that Democrats then used 
to win those elections. So these were their rules. And until Democrats use their rules, I've worked in elections, you've worked in elections. Republicans are like usually the kings of absentee. That's how they keep winning. Yeah. And that was their thing. And they were like, wait a minute, you used our rules to win? Get out of here. We're going to get rid of this thing, which makes it inconvenient. For them. I mean, and by the way, let me just mention to Lindsey Graham, it's not being a black person and being a Republican. Michael Steele gets to come to the cookout. He's at the cookout. <laughs> Lindsey, you can't that's come right. to the cookout. And that's because of you. <laughs> that's not because Michael Steele is. It's because of you, Lindsey. You're not invited. Uh, let's go, Juanita. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> Steele, Joy, I think you... He can come, right? He can come. He can maybe even bring the potato salad. But the reality is, like you said, Joy, Republicans wanted those accessible points for voting as long as it worked for them. But as soon as black and brown voters turned out in mass to deliver the U.S. Senate to flip Georgia, which hadn't gone for a Democratic presidential candidate in, what, 20 plus years? Now they're pulling all the way back. And look, be very afraid. Fear me. Fear voters who look like me. Because the moment you give the access points that H.R. 1 offers, once you get that legislation through Congress, the communities that need the most help, the communities that are most impacted by legislation will be showing up at the polls because those barriers will be removed. So I'm looking at H.R. 1 like Congress has a massive opportunity to shore up our democracy at a moment when when Republicans are actively working to dismantle it brick by brick, state by state. And this is an opportunity for Congress to really step up and make sure our democracy functions and our voting rights are protected. You know, and, and there's a, exactly and there's a reason that I went through and said what's in the bill because they're trying to do the same thing they tried to do with the stimulus, Michael, and try to make it sound scary just in general, but not tell you what's in the bill. I mean, when people think about, wow, I don't have to go to a copy machine and like Xerox my ID and then put my ID in the mail, which is actually not the safest and most secure thing to do. I don't have to do that. I can actually just go ahead and vote. It's easier and I can read and have it automatic registration so I don't have to actually do anything. It's like a coupon in reverse. It's like easier. Um, I mean, Utah votes all by mail. They have managed to elect Republicans. Right. You ran in Democratic-leaning Maryland. You, there's a, a Republican yep. governor who managed to win there. If people like your ideas, they'll vote for you in any place. Colorado does it, Washington State. Let me read Delta Airlines' statement on this law, because this is the problem these corporations are going to have, Michael, and also Juanita. Here's Delta's statement. The legislation signed this week improved considerably during the legislative process and expands weekend voting, codifies Sunday voting, protects the voters' ability to cast absentee ballots. So basically, they're just lying about the law and trying to make the law sound better because they don't want to get boycotted. Coca-Cola had a similarly sort of lame statement. We believe voting is a foundational right in America and access should be broad-based and inclusive. This isn't going to help them, Michael, right? These kinds of statements are just going to put the crosshairs back on them. It does. It does. You, you, because those those statements uh, are nowhere near reflective of the onerous nature of the law that they're talking about. That the law that they're referring to disenf- actively disenfranchises franchises voters, uh, specifically black voters. Um, and so you have to speak to that. You cannot come with some sort of soft pedaled sort of, you know, warm, fuzzy. Oh, we love voting and we support voting. <laughs> Kumbaya to the voting. You right. know, that's not well, what this real, is about. Real, real You've got to take a public stand here yeah. and push back against. Can I just real quick? Because yeah. you, you said something that's very, very important. Uh, and, and I think it's a serious point for Republicans to understand exactly what this I'm mean, speaking specifically Republicans. How do you think we won in 2010? What do you think I did as national chairman in 2010? 
I'll galvanize our vote because a lot of our voters actually are seniors who couldn't get to polls. So we My- utilize the vote by mail system Michael, to allow them to vote. The vote, that the, the, way. the heart. My heartbreaking first election campaign I worked in was 2004. You know how Republicans beat us in Florida, and we just knew we had George W. Bush on the, yep. on the campus. Uh, we had on the canvas absentee. They, we, we, yep. Their voters were invisible. We couldn't see them because they were voting absentee. Republicans kill it absentee. You guys are cutting your own uh, throats really quick. I, we are way out of time. Very quickly. I'm being told to stop. But <laughs> Juanita, very quickly, are you with Bernice King or are, and those who are saying don't boycott the state, boycott the companies? Very quickly. I think boycott the companies, right? Like this is an opportunity for black and brown individuals to show their economic power here. Yeah. And especially in the face of companies that don't care about their voting rights. Yeah. Stand up and use your economic ability. Yeah. So Bernie's King said, all right, Juanita Tolliver, Michael Steele. I really got to go now. Uh, thank you both very much. Coming up, the CDC director says that she has a sense of impending doom with too many Americans apparently under the impression that the pandemic is over. Guys, it's not over. It's still a threat. Hang in there. Mask up. Right back. Like most things connected to this once in a lifetime pandemic, we continue to toggle between the good and the bad. First, the good. President Biden announced today that 90 percent of all adults over 16 will be eligible for the the vaccine by April 19th. He also announced that the U.S. will more than double the number of pharmacies where people can get the shot. For the vast, vast majority of adults, you won't have to wait till May 1. You'll be eligible for your shot on April 19th. The failure to take this virus seriously, precisely what got us in this mess in the first place, risk more cases, more deaths, deaths. Look, as I do my part to accelerate the vaccine distribution and vaccinations, I need the American people to do their part as well. The United States has administered more than three million shots a day for the past three days. More good news. The CDC is reporting that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are providing are proving highly effective at preventing symptomatic and asymptomatic infections. Unfortunately, after seeing the positivity rate decline, daily cases are now rising again. The average number of new cases has increased 10 percent over the past week. Hospitalizations have also increased and deaths are once again averaging about a thousand a day. A visibly shaken Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, pleaded with Americans to keep fighting the spread. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared. I so badly want to be done. I know you all so badly want to be done. We are just almost there, but not quite yet. And so I'm asking you to just hold on a little longer to get vaccinated when you can so that all of those people that we all love will still be here when this pandemic ends. Joining me now is Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama White House Policy Director. And I'm going to come back to that very emotional plea um, uh, that we heard from uh, Mrs. Walens, Dr. Walensky. But let's go backwards just for a second, because Dr. Deborah Birx has been doing some sort of reputation maintenance recently. Uh, here's part of her interview, um, the former White House coordinator, Deborah Birx, this weekend. There were about 100,000 deaths that came from that original surge. 
all of the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. You can go through her. You can go through Brett Giroir, who was a former coronavirus testing czar. You can go through the former CDC director, Dr. Redfield. This, this is, this is a, a lot too late, right? That kind of retrospective. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Joy. And, and honestly, it, it, all they did was exactly, as you said, reputation management. We did not hear about any of the atrocities that we know are still uncovered, unearthed, and that have been candidly supported by a lot of those physicians who went there. And honestly, a lot of us have been in similar positions where we're working for very powerful people. And the truth is exactly what we should be telling people. That's always kind of the ultimate job, especially as a physician. It's very disappointing, Joy. And so meanwhile, so, so we had to get that out. But um, let's talk about what we're dealing with now. Uh, we've got Florida, where the governor is like, bring back the cruise ships, right? And fighting the CDC on that. Spring break, we saw all those pictures of people partying for spring break. We're now seeing the results of that with increased infections in Florida. That um, We're seeing this just go up all over the country. Are you as scared as Dr. Walensky? I am. I, I will say this. I think that offering Dr. Birx's comments and Dr. Walensky's was actually a very interesting contrast, because what if we had had that level of impending doom vocalized by Dr. Birx, by all the doctors? We would probably be in a better place. Not, not you know, not zero death, but certainly nowhere near what we have today. So I, I definitely think that we have to still maintain vigilance. If you are vaccinated, Joy, you can have some semblance of normal lives by seeing friends and family who are vaccinated, hugging them, sitting and having a meal without masks. But for goodness sake, please do not go and gather in person in a tight setting. Avoid scenes where you do not have any clue who these people are and what their vaccination status is. And for the love of everything, please put a mask on because we don't know who's vaccinated. We don't understand who and what, uh, you know, what risks people have. We don't know who has a chronic disease that could kill them if they get exposed to this. So no, I I do have that sense. You don't have to tell me twice. I've gotten a vaccine number one. I'm not going anywhere. I don't even care when I get vaccinated. I'll probably be hiding out still at my house. Um, And then, by the way, Donald Trump issued a statement, you know, that was written like a six-year-old wrote it, so I won't even read it, um, that, you know, going after Dr. Birx, you know, who cares? Um, Do you agree with me? I have this sort of working theory that we should be taking the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and and basically giving it to every person that's between age 18 and age 30 because they're taking the most risk. They're partying. They're out there. Do you agree with me? Because they don't have to come back a second time. Should we be maybe, you know, sort of sectioning the, 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 the vaccines that way? Yeah, Joy, when we knew there was a possibility for a one-dose vaccine, I had actually said, like, we should be going to people who are less likely to come in for their second shot and who we have a hard time following up with. And that is 100% the demographic you describe. I have patients like that who don't follow up to get their HPV vaccines or some of the other ones that take multi-doses. So I'm a huge proponent of instead of this priority grouping where we're still working our way through 1A, 1B, 1C, 2A, get it out to the very people who we know all year long have been spreading this virus. And that has been younger people who tend to not want to wear masks or stay indoors, et cetera. So you're absolutely right. And get some of these, I I, I like that plan. Get some of these right wing, you know, whoever's pay them to go out and just promote the vaccine to let the Republicans do it and take it to the club and let the young people do it. That's what I say. Just, (laughs) just get everybody vaccinated. Dr. Kavita Patel. Thank you very much. Appreciate you up next on tonight's is tonight's absolute worst. You've been waiting all this time. So you don't want to miss it. Ah. 
Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. So one Texas senator is still trying to convince America that he's no longer in Cancun. Hence, the border antics starring Crocodile Cruz, who perhaps thinks that swamp creature realness will make him more electable, and who claimed to be heckled by the brown boogeyman known as human traffickers and cartel members on the other side that is Mexico. Ted, are you sure that wasn't just people in Mexico laughing at you? I mean, come on. Cruz also made sure that he was behind the camera when inside a customs and border facility in Donna, Texas. Please respect the rules and give the people dignity and respect. That's all we ask. Dignity and respect. You're asking, is this dignity and respect? Look at these people. Please give dignity and respect to the people. Let let me ask you. There's a pandemic. I respectfully ask you, sir. There is a pandemic. Is this respecting the rights of these kids? I ask you. Please respect Are you respecting the rights of these kids? This is not a zoo, sir. You heard what you said. This is not a zoo. Of course, we see the people in that video. We aren't saying that they aren't there. We just don't believe Cruz or any of those Disney jungle boat Republicans actually see them as anything other than background for a publicity stunt. Cruz accuses the staffer and the Biden administration of trying to hide the migrants. Never mind that during the Trump administration, reporters and government officials were barred from entering facilities days after inspections found squalid conditions that threatened the health and safety of migrants staying there. And never mind that in 2019, we saw higher numbers of unaccompanied children under Trump. Back then, did you see Crocodile Cruz or Lindsey Graham peel himself away from his AR-15 long enough to condemn Trump for his border policies? No, of course not, because none of this is about the people, about the horrible conditions they fled or about a path to citizenship that could give them a chance. It's about the racist dog whistles and performative BS distractions that now officially define this party. The Republican Party like doesn't actually do anything anymore other than perform political theatrics, something we can pin entirely on one person, the Florida man, who without Twitter or the presidency is so desperate to hog the mic that he busted into a wedding toast last Saturday at Mar-a-Lago that was predictably all about him. The border's not good. The border is the worst anybody's ever seen it. And what you see now, multiply it times 10, Jim. What's happening to the kids? They're living in squalor. They are living like nobody has ever seen anybody. There's never been anything like what's up. And you're going to have hundreds, and you have it now. And I just say, do you miss me yet? Yeah, cheers to the bride and gloom. You know, the wedding crasher in the ill-fitting suit says that he will probably visit the southern border in coming weeks, asked by nobody, meaning the antics there will continue. And that is why the GOP party of theatrics is the absolute worst. We'll be right back. Okay, admit it. We've all been addicted to Amazon during this entire pandemic. And Amazon's profits went up 84% last year, and CEO Jeff Bezos' personal wealth rose by about $70 billion off our obsessive purchasing. 
Bezos is so rich that as of last year, he makes more money per second than the typical U.S. worker makes in an entire week. Bezos has made it a point to be publicly philanthropic, with Amazon donating $10 million to organizations including the NAACP and the National Urban League in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests over George Floyd last summer. But when it comes to the conditions of his own workers, many of them black, Bezos hasn't been so charitable. Amazon has a history of being anti-union, and that behavior hasn't changed in the most recent efforts by its workers to unionize. Today was the last day of voting to unionize for nearly 6,000 workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. If successful, it would be the first union at any Amazon facility, and it could spark a labor movement across the country, particularly across the South. The Alabama workers are fighting for the right to collectively bargain over working conditions, including safety standards, training, breaks, pay, and benefits. Amazon has pointed out that the company offers a $15 an hour starting wage, benefits, and a clean working environment for its employees. The National Labor Relations Board will begin tallying up the vote tomorrow, but it could take a few days to get the final results. And I'm joined now by Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. He's called this fight to unionize our Selma. And Jennifer Bates, a pro-union worker at Amazon's Bessemer Warehouse, who testified in front of the U.S. Senate Budget Committee on the working conditions at Amazon earlier this month. And I want to start with you, Jennifer, um, because there have been a lot of competing claims. There was this claim that paying workers $15 an hour doesn't make you a progressive workplace, um, said Mark Pockin of, of, of Wisconsin, saying your union bust and make workers urinate in water bottles. That was what he said. Amazon responded and said, you don't believe that that thing is, that peeing in bottles thing is true. If it was true, no one would work for us. But there is reporting at The Intercept and Vice News that it is true. So I just want you to clear that up. Are workers being forced to pee in bottles rather than take bathroom breaks at Amazon? Um, I haven't heard that at the Amazon that I've, I'm working at. Um, haven't seen it either. So uh, if it's happening, I'm not sure. Okay. And what are the conditions then? If it, so, so that's one thing. What are the conditions that in your mind um, make it that you would want to have a union uh, rather than work as you are now? Well, most of the, um, the some of the issues are we have um, safety issues, um, Longer hours of work and less breaks that we have. Um, no communication or support from leadership. And then it's well, let me let me actually bring uh, Bishop Barber into this because you have called this our Selma, and I, I know that there is a obviously a, a connection because Dr. King was fighting to unionize um, sanitation workers, um, you know, at the time that he died. But why do you think it's so important? I mean, Amazon does pay fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage. What's well, our economic Selma? And actually, before uh, sixty-eight and sixty-five, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March, Dr. King connected. Uh, the union fight and the vote for Biden rights. He actually said the battle to suppress the vote and the battle to suppress labor rights has been a tactic used by Southern whites um, aristocracy to hold on to their money. Listen, the Retail Workers Union has shown that while Amazon claims 15 uh, at that plant is, is, is great, there are warehouses near there that make 18 and 21 starting, $18.21 hours. You have the Amazon took the pay people's $2.00 our hazard pay, while Jeff Bezos made $180 plus billion. The, the workers have no contracts. They are at real workers, can be fired for any cause. Um, over 20,000 Amazon employees contracted COVID. 
Yes, they gave $10 million of chump change to certain uh, uh, groups and, and, and civil rights organizations but, and claiming that he supports black lives. Well, what about the 5,500 black lives in that plant? What about the white lives, the brown lives, the Asian lives in that plant who have no contract, who had their two-hour hazard, dollar hazard pay taken, who are not making what their counterparts are making right near them? You know, he's been very good at camouflaging the real battle here. And we know in the South, the battle for voting rights and the battle for union rights is the same fight. Because what it does, Joy, it brings together the coalition that the aristocracy and the ruling class has always feared. Black people, white people, brown people, Asian and native, poor and low wealth workers. And when that coalition is organized in the South and votes together, it fundamentally changes. We saw it in 2008 in North Carolina with Obama. We saw it in 2020 in Georgia. And that's one of the fears about all of this spreading across the South and the country. And that's why, in many ways, Bessemer is our economic, I call him the Bessemer 6000, is our economic Selma, because here we are again in Alabama. Here we are right down the road from Birmingham that Dr. King fought in in 65. And here we have all kinds of tactics. I'll tell you one other tactic, Joy, they're using. They bring in people to teach about the union and they teach the wrong information. And when the workers question that, the workers have to come before the class and have their pictures taken right. as a form of intimidation. So and, there's a lot of wrong going on here. Uh, very quickly, uh, Jennifer, what would it change in your working life to have a union there? In, in, in your mind, what do you think would change if this was a unionized workplace? To um, unionize the Amazon Investment Alabama would actually, for, for what, means, what it would mean to me and a lot of my uh, co-workers is that we'll have job security and that we'll have a seat at the table to speak to Amazon about the working conditions. Uh, we'll be able to speak about uh, some of the things that they need to take care of to uh, allow us to work comfortably. Uh, with Even with human resources, we're not able to talk with them or they ignore us. So it actually will give us a seat at the table to sit down and force Amazon to talk with us about um, the safety issues that we continue to you know, uh, speak to them about or just firing the young people without giving them information on the things that they should or should not be doing in the facility. Right. We have people being rolled out in wheelchairs, uh, heart attack. Uh, you know, it's 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 a lot that's going on in there that the people on the outside uh, don't understand. Well, uh, thank you for helping us to understand it this evening and being with us um, this evening. Bishop William Barber, Jennifer Bates, thank you both very much. And that is tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.